Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. It is a, a good day to be here, and I appreciate all of you braving the weather. I know it was a little yucky outside this morning. Just the same, I'm excited to get some good rain and some warmer weather, and as Andy mentioned, to see our lawns and things spring back to life a little bit. So uh, it, is a, it is a good time. I was uh, reflecting on the passage I wanted to talk about this morning, and I was thinking about the way that at so many sporting events, we have different songs we use to kind of rally our people, don't we? So I don't have to know what your favorite sport is to imagine there's probably some strong association that you have in your mind between that sport and some specific music. So maybe you're thinking of high school football and the sound of the marching band playing the fight song, and that's what really kind of gets the crowd going. There are some songs we use to kind of rally the troops, and then there are some songs we use more as victory songs. So maybe in your head it's the sound of, we are the champions. Or more recently, I know at the hockey games I like to go to in Nashville, they love to play, all I do is win. We have different music that we use to celebrate, and in fact, we've also got rituals that accompany great victories. In many sports, you'll see um, someone run up with a cooler full of Gatorade to dump on the victorious coach for his big win. There's the celebratory dances that happen sometimes in the end zones after wonderful uh, and significant plays. So uh, the passage that we're looking at right now is leading into the Passover. And of course, uh, in, in the, the Christian calendar, we know that it was at the Passover uh, that ultimately Jesus died and was raised again. So even though we celebrate Jesus every Sunday, it wasn't the case that he died and was risen every Sunday. There was a specific time of the year that this happened, and it was significant in Israel's history. So as they gathered for the Passover, it was a time that they remembered how often as a people they had been vastly outnumbered by their enemies, but at the same time they reminded each other that the God they served was more powerful than any of their foes, and that even if they were outnumbered, even if they were small, even if they were vulnerable, somehow God would act to love them and sustain them and carry them through. So one of their traditions to rally themselves, to encourage themselves, they would incorporate palm branches. Palm branches were also used to celebrate military victories. Uh, sometimes they would carry them up to Jerusalem uh, from the more coastal areas. So they really went to great length to make sure they had palm branches with them because you wouldn't naturally find them there in Jerusalem. So they'd bring them from the more coastal areas. Some of them would even use these branches to, to construct little shelters that they could live in, uh, camp out in basically for a few days while they were there for the festivities. But the entire festival was a time of national pride. It was a time of religious fervor, of kind of rallying themselves back again. You know, we can talk about some of the events in our own church life that encourage us. I know church camp. Uh, I know we're going to miss LTC next weekend. We have certain events that really kind of get our blood pumping and get us excited about our faith, that remind us we're not alone in this and we have companions on our journey. So the Passover would have that kind of effect on all the nation of Israel. They'd come from all over the world 
to make that pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to be together to worship and to remember their history for that week. As Jesus made his way into Jerusalem this time, he became part of the festivities. If we were to speak of a great king or a champion riding into the city, wouldn't you expect to find him on some sort of a powerful horse accompanied by chariots and spears, maybe the plunder of victory, spoils from the battles? But Jesus chooses a very different way. Jesus comes riding in on a young donkey. And of course, this was according to the Old Testament prediction that that's exactly what he would do. So it was in accordance with prophecy, but just the same to ponder, here is their king, here is the victor of all history who didn't need any pomp or circumstance. He simply came riding in on a young donkey. He's a very different kind of king. Jesus was humble in ways that other kings are not, yet he is also powerful in ways that they could not imagine. You know, they say that's the thing about someone who's, who's truly strong. They don't have to display everything. He simply knows who he is. He doesn't have to seek praise. He doesn't have to seek attention. He knew who he was. He knew what his mission was. For the last three weeks, I did a, a brief study of three psalms with you, and it wasn't actually my intent to continue a psalm study, but there was a psalm that is just a perfect match for this story we're looking at this morning. And so I am going to look with you this morning at one additional psalm, and that is Psalm 118. So if you have your Bibles, if you've got an app on your phone with the Bible, I'd invite you to open there. We're going to not read all of it, but we're going to look at a pretty good chunk of it. But Psalm 118 carried a lot of significance for the Passover festival and events. If you read through it, you'll see that it repeatedly expresses hope in God's steadfast love. What's the thing we can depend on? What's the thing we can count on? It's that God's love is everlasting and it won't let us down. It will come through for us. Psalm 18 was one of the songs they sang the most at the Passover celebration. It was actually the psalm they were singing as Jesus is riding into the city. Tom read that passage for us at the beginning of our worship service this morning. But as you hear them saying certain things like, Hosanna, or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we know exactly which psalm they're singing. It's Psalm 118. So as Jesus came riding into the city, this is the one they sang. In fact, Jesus also references this psalm during the telling of one of his parables. There's a parable Jesus shares about these, these tenants. The master leaves. He leaves people in charge of his property. They do a terrible job of running things. They're irresponsible. Ultimately, they're, they're, they're covetous. They're murderous. Uh, lousy leaders they've been. Lousy stewards they've been. He uses that psalm to talk about how the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And in fact, he is using that parable to kind of get at the Pharisees leaders who he says, you've been left in charge until the son came, but you haven't been very good stewards of what belongs to my father. But he uses Psalm 118 as he addresses them and what they've been doing. So we can see this is a psalm that has great significance in the life of the nation, but also in the mind of Christ as he went about teaching and preaching. You may also remember that just before he died, 
Jesus gathered with his disciples for what we sometimes call the Last Supper. It's where he instituted the Lord's Supper. And you may remember this detail. I know it's mentioned in at least Mark's gospel. It says that after they had eaten and he had explained the bread and the cup, before they went out to the Mount of Olives where he was going to pray, it says they sang a hymn together. Traditionally, there were three hymns they sang just before the Passover meal. There were three hymns they sang after the Passover meal. And even to this day, it is still a tradition that Jewish people will sing Psalm 118 at the conclusion of a Passover meal. Very likely, these, these were some of the words Jesus was singing with his disciples shortly before he was arrested and crucified. The song begins and ends with the very same thought. If you look at verse 1 or at verse 29, you can compare and see the wording is exactly the same. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Gratitude is always an appropriate place to begin and to end every day, isn't it? We should always try to take a posture of gratitude for all that we've been given. And something I would challenge you to do, it's easy to say thank you, God, when you got the big promotion or the big raise or something came through and you passed the test. It's easy to praise God and thank God when you got what you wanted. But I would encourage you sometimes to try and formulate a prayer before you feel ready for it. Even when you're feeling frustrated, say a prayer, but start off and say, thank you, God, for this really frustrating thing because, and push yourself to think about it. You know, maybe this is stretching me somehow. Maybe I've become wiser because of how uncomfortable that was. Maybe now I've learned something about how much more I need you than I need all these other things. But to push yourself to always begin and end from a place of gratitude, that all of your life is a gift. We accept the blessings. We also have to accept the challenges gratefully that God has given us the chance to grow and his steadfast love will carry us through, beginning and ending with gratitude because God's love endures forever. This thought was important in the mind of Paul. Uh, certainly as he writes in Romans 8, he's reflecting on this, this issue of all the terrible things we experience in the world and he poses that question, what shall separate us from the love of God? And he lists all these different kinds of things, famine or hardship or nakedness or persecution or, or the sword. And he says, no, we're, we're more than conquerors because of Christ, because nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So we as the church continue to believe and to confess the opening and closing verses of what this song teaches us. We should give thanks to God because he's good and his love endures forever. We remain safe when we remain in his love. The first half of this psalm is filled with a lot of vivid imagery, specifically having to do with feeling surrounded. He uses the imagery of swarms, talking about swarms of bees, and he says, this is what it's like to be me right now. I feel like I've got people swarming on every side of me trying to get at me. Now, I don't know if any of you have, have ever had an encounter with a swarm of stinging insects. I have not, and I hope never to go through that. But what can you really do when you're faced with a swarm of insects? You pretty much just have to run, don't you? I mean, you can't get a fly swatter and start getting them one at a time. You're just going to get beat up and bruised up and maybe worse. So 
you pretty much either have to run, and if possible, if there's a lake nearby or something, you get yourself under the water to try and get those bugs off of you because what could you possibly do against so many? That's the feeling that he has. It's like a swarm rushing at me. And he says, there's no way I should be able to survive this. There's no way I should be able to overcome this. But he says, with God's help, I look upon my enemies triumphantly. He says, they were consumed. I cut them down. God gave me what I needed to be victorious. Even though my enemies, everything that surrounded me was more than I could handle, God gave me enough to make it through. He says in verse 8, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Those are easy things to believe when you're in a position of power, aren't they? When you've got the victory and you've got the upper hand, it's easy to talk about trusting God. It is a lot harder to say those things in a time like the one where Jesus had come along and in fact, they lost the nation, they were divided and then conquered, and now they're living under Roman rule. Those are difficult things to say because you wanna believe it. it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust humans, and it's better to have the Lord than to have the power of princes, but man, it sure would be nice to get the upper hand on these Romans. It sure is nice to have your own kingdom. It's harder to confess these things when you're being occupied and governed by foreigners who don't share your faith. But he says just the same, contrary to what our world wants to claim, that all truths are kind of equally valid and you just live your truth and find your truth and do what makes you feel good. He's making comparative language here and he says, no, God is better than every other option you've got. Not that people won't present you with options, but God and what he provides is better than any other option on the table. As we continue into this psalm, what happens is that he makes a shift and we go from talking about God and who God is to this procession towards worship at the temple. We're moving towards the place of sacrifice. And I want you to notice as we read through these verses, I want you to think about approaching the city of Jerusalem. Some, some of you may have been blessed to go to the Holy Lands at some point and actually see Jerusalem, but, but if you haven't, when you're going to Jerusalem, you're actually going uphill. In the Psalms, you may have noticed sometimes there are Psalms that are called Songs of Ascent. You call them a songs, songs of Ascent because when you go to Jerusalem, you're going up to worship. It's surrounded by hills that get larger. So you imagine making that trek from wherever you were toward Jerusalem. And as you go, you're going to start having more and more companions on your journey. I kind of enjoy sometimes when it's time to get to church and you start pulling into the parking lot. And don't you kind of enjoy seeing people in the other cars and like, oh, I know them and I know them and I know them. That's kind of how it goes when they're going toward Jerusalem. All of a sudden, I go from being surrounded by these swarms of people who don't share my faith. But when we're going to worship the Lord, I start seeing more and more people who believe what I believe. And it was a source of encouragement to them. And in fact, they got to where they could just talk to each other openly because it was safe. You knew anyone who's moving this direction at this time, this is someone I share deep things in common with. And so as they approach Jerusalem, they're going to be getting to the place where there are the city gates. And at the time of this psalm's composition, the city would have had walls, they would be guarded You'd have to kind of talk to the person at the gate to prove that you had a legitimate reason for coming to the inside. So he says in verse 19, open for me the gates of the righteous. 
I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. So he feels the gratitude and he's going to express that gratitude. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. What does it mean to be able to enter God's city for them? And I think for us, we have to ask, do we really consider what a privilege it is, even in this life, to be able to pray to God, to enter into the throne room of God, to enter into the gates of the righteous and stand before God and be heard as if we deserve in any way to be there? But to be able to stand because of God's love and say, open up the gates. I'm here to give thanks. I'm here to worship. It is a privilege to be here because being in the presence of God means salvation. When you're in God's city, when you're in God's presence, nothing can harm you if God won't permit it. He continues in verse 22, and this is where it gets interesting for those of us reading with Christian eyes. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us, or your translation might not even translate the word. It might just say Hosanna, which is what that means. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Knowing how thoroughly Jesus had been rejected by the Jewish leaders, what a fascinating song to be singing as he came riding in on the donkey. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Those who claim to be laying the foundation got it completely wrong. God is going to do something surprising. And if you were looking at how you're going to build your life, doesn't Jesus continue to be the solid rock that most builders in this world would tell you to reject? What was the function of a cornerstone? It was kind of the basis for the rest of the building. You laid a solid cornerstone and then everything else was going to be stable because of it. You built everything else around the strength of the cornerstone. And that's the role that Jesus is to play. You would say, I want to build my life on my faith in Jesus. And someone would say, well, that's great, but you better make sure you got a good career also. You say, I want to build my life on Jesus. And they say, well, that's great, but what kind of neighborhood are you able to live in? I want to just build my life on Jesus. Well, that's good, but what have you done to prove to everyone else that your opinion is worth anything? What have you done that's impressive in the world? I want to build my life on Jesus. Well, that sounds really nice, but so many of his teachings are, are antiquated and don't jive very well with popular culture. A lot of the things he claimed are, are offensive. It's nice that you want to do that, but everyone wants to say, well, Jesus sounds good, but I've got better foundations than him to consider. I would simply remind us that in the last couple of thousand years since he came, Jesus is an anvil that many have tried to pound on, but Jesus is an anvil that has worn out every hammer that has tried to exhaust him. He doesn't go away. He is everlasting. Nothing is going to get the upper hand on the king of kings. For Christ to be our foundation, the psalm reminds us, this is the work of God. It is something that God accomplishes. We say, Hosanna, God save us. It's also a way of saying we believe God will save us. 
And so we have the procession, we have the entrance into the gates of the city, and now they move toward the altar where things take such a twist. We give thanks to him and worship him. We remember his steadfast love. But when we get to the altar, the altar is a place for sacrifice. The challenge of this psalm is that as Jesus goes into the city, he embraces his role as the Messiah, as the king. You know, much of his ministry, he chooses not to use that term for himself, not because he wasn't the Messiah, but because of all the wrong ideas people had about it. But this is the time of reckoning where he's going to show them what it really means to be the Messiah, God's anointed one, the Savior. And so as he comes into the city, the Pharisees start speaking up and almost immediately kind of nullify themselves, don't they? They see people greeting him as the Messiah. They hear them singing Psalm 118, and they say to each other, See, this is getting us nowhere. The whole world has gone after him. That's what they said to each other. You know, we're not, we're not really accomplishing anything, but we want to stop that guy. We don't have any better ideas, but, but look how everyone's going after him. It's this, this grabbing for power. They had no good alternative. They just wanted Jesus to be stopped. But the sad irony is, even the people who are celebrating him didn't fully grasp what it meant for him to be the Messiah that they needed. They had a vision of the Messiah riding in triumphantly because he was going to conquer the Romans, or at very least drive them back out of their nation, give them their, their kingdom back, all the, all the stuff that they wanted here and now in this life. That was their vision for him. They wanted Rome to be defeated, and they could shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, if he's going to do what I want him to do. But we have to remind ourselves of this truth that they may have greeted him with shouts of Hosanna and God save us, but the person they thought should be exalted as a kingly conqueror, in just a few days they were going to see him standing before them, beaten and bloodied as a blasphemer, they thought. Instead of seeing him lifted up with, with the greatest sources of honor and acclamation, instead he was put up beside this notorious criminal named Barabbas. And in fact, they picked Barabbas over him, the crowds did. So they'd been shouting, yeah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But just a few days later, don't know exactly the composition of these crowds, but there are now crowds of people shouting, crucify him. Jesus came to be the king that we needed, not necessarily the king that we wanted. God's king and his kingdom would be established, but not in the way that anyone was expecting, neither Jesus' enemies nor his friends. So that year at the Passover, truly there was a coronation. The king had come to claim his kingdom. He had come to see what those tenants had done with what his father had entrusted them with. He was the son. He would be king. And it'll be great on the Sunday of Easter, the Sunday of the resurrection, to celebrate the crown of his victory over death as he came walking out of the tomb. But we have to remember that before the crown of glory first, he chose to wear the crown of thorns. He chose to take all the shame, being ostracized, being made into a scapegoat. He chose to put himself in a place of such humility 
that it truly was, as this psalm would say, it's like the whole world can turn on you, but the steadfast love of the Lord is what holds us and carries us through. God's love does and will endure forever, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. And Jesus chose to show us that when he was willing to wait on the crown of glory and instead, as they welcomed him as their king, he took on the crown of shame. We need to give thanks to God. We should begin and end giving thanks to God, not just for the joy of resurrection, but also for the pain of the cross, for that difficult journey culminating in the end of Jesus's life, because truly we could not enjoy the blessings of forgiveness had it not been for Jesus's willingness to endure the shame of death on a cross the ugliness and the pain that that involved. At this time, maybe you've got something that's been weighing on you. Maybe as you think about Jesus, you need to confront within yourself that he, he does need to be at the foundation of who you are. We can't do this lukewarm thing where we're just Christian enough to kind of get our, our get out of hell free card, so to speak, and then not really love God. What Jesus tells us is not to be lukewarm. He says either be hot or be cold, but at least choose something. At least stand for something. And he would invite us to stand with him, to follow in his footsteps, to put our faith in him, and to really show through our actions we believe it is the love of God that endures forever. And that will be our safe place. That will be our salvation. And once we have that, we choose not to depend on anything else. If there's something we could pray with you about this morning, if you've never named Jesus as king, the way this crowd was doing, we want to do that truthfully, that Jesus is Lord. We do that through confessing him as our savior, putting him on in baptism for the forgiveness of our sins, and so that he comes to dwell within our hearts through his Holy Spirit. But if there's anything we could assist you with this morning, this is a time we're glad to do that. We would invite you to come and talk to us while together we stand and sing this song.